take a second. Think about how you identify. Really, take a second and think about it. Hold a few words in your head. Even better, if you can, jot those words down. Welcome back, friends, and thank you for tuning in to another installment of The Newish Jewish. My name is Jesse Cerati. Since launching the first episode of this podcast, I've been using the feedback I received to try to better figure out, aside from the ridiculously catchy music, what its identity is going to be. I've been receiving wonderful feedback from all of you, and I'm so appreciative to everyone listening and engaging with this material in one way or another. However, for me to start tackling the task of really cementing this show's identity, I decided to reflect on what my own identity is. So I just started jotting down terms that I thought identified myself. And even though you didn't ask, here you go. This is what I wrote. Bostonian slash American large ice coffee, New York City transplant, yada, 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 Jewish reform, progressive, political junkie, nerd, cinephile. Uh, for those who don't know, by the way, a cinephile is just someone that's a fan of movies, uh, privileged and responsible to do right by my grandparents who were not extrovert, or at least that's what my MBTI score claims, fan of uh, Thai food and top sheets, oh, and sushi, both the food and my dog. Yes, my dog's name is Sushi, and she is the best. And the last thing I wrote down was, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. So it seemed at first this exercise was not helpful at all. Uh, But then I looked back over it, and I noticed something. These identifiers are quite different than what they would have been a few years ago. Sure, some of the more surface identifiers haven't changed, but some have definitely gone stronger and maybe moved up my list and have become more immediate, while other identifiers I would have had a few years ago I no longer relate to. Some things are uniquely me, and others are completely impacted by my friends, family, and by everyday occurrences, large and small. Now, I created this podcast as a means to further dialogue across varying demographics on social issues that affect our communities at large and provide a shared platform for those leaders affecting change day in and day out. The newest Jewish is now part of my identity, and to each of you providing feedback, you are helping construct the show's identity. And when it comes to speaking passionately and knowledgeably about identity, there's nobody I'd rather talk to than today's guest, Abby Stein. Abby is a transgender activist whose impact across communities in 2016 landed her as one of Jewish Week's 36 under 36 emerging Jewish leaders. Growing up and being raised as a man in a Hasidic community in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Abby struggled fitting into an identity that ultimately did not match the person she knew she could be. Today, Abby is a major trans rights activist and also a supporter for individuals moving out of ultra-Orthodox and other fundamentalist societies. A growing icon in progressive circles, Abby's story has been featured in major publications, including Haaretz, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much for being here today, Abby. Thanks for having me. Uh, So I'm just kind of interested to start off in giving our listeners a chance to hear your personal story, Uh, just a little bit about what it was like growing up in a Hasidic community. Um, I always joke when people ask me to give a short background of like my background. Um, I usually joke like, why do you have six hours? It's, it's, it's really hard. It's not easy to just give a 
Snapchat, a snapshot of like what it, what it is growing up in a Hasidic community. And I think people just usually just want to know the punchline. And the problem that happens with that a lot is that the nuance of it is missing. So, but I guess the, the easiest way to describe it for an outsider, for someone specifically people who know nothing about the Hasidic community, is think of it, um, think of anything that you, we all identify as pop culture or as culture altogether. Should it be music, uh, TV, the way people socialize with each other, the way people dress, any kind of fashion statement, um, magazines, stuff that we read, um, cultural icons and so on? None of that exists in the Hasidic community. So you're talking about an extremely and radically sheltered group, um, kind of like the Amish, but sh- even more sheltered to some extent. They're not as radical when it comes to technology and so on, but they are even more sheltered and they live in New York City, which is an interesting part also because they live in New York City and they don't live as if they live in New York City. Um, I grew up in a family of, ter- of 13, so I have five older sisters, then I have four younger brothers, and then three more sisters, uh, which is fairly common. I mean, a family of 13 was to the bigger side, but not even outrageous. Um, an average family in the Hasidic community is considered to be about eight kids. Um, though personally, I think I feel like I, the families are bigger, but that's about the average. My father has 10 siblings, my mother has eight, um, and that is a fairly common um, uh, scenario in, in that community. So in addition to just our own family, we it's a very strong family life, which is a part that is a night has a lot of nice parts to it. There's some downsides to perhaps having such big families, but there's also some upsides. And then the community as a whole, one of the nicest parts in the community in general is the family life, which is, again, it's important for me to always make sure that people know that it's not black and white. And obviously I left and I think the community, I think the negative parts outweigh the positive parts, but there are some beautiful parts in there as well. Uh, we grow up speaking only Yiddish, so um, Yiddish, and we also learn Hebrew, and I've learned Aramaic, but meaning we don't learn English, at least boys, people who grow up as boys don't learn English. Girls get a bit better of an English, but it's still, at least in my family, it's still not used. Um, some families have different things, some community, every community within the Hasidic community, every family has its own slight changes, so obviously I can only talk about my own experience within my family and my community, but that's fairly common. Most people speak Yiddish. Um, you dress in what we would call an 18th century European clothing most of the time. Um, men wear black hats, black coats. Women pre-marriage just cover, you got to cover your collarbone, cover your, cover your ankles, cover your knees. Uh, once they're married, women are supposed to shave their hair and then cover their heads um, and so on. People get engaged and married when they're around 17 and 18, which is the most common. Uh, once you reach 20, you're old. You're considered old, and then um, birth control is not really okay most of the time, so you just start having a lot of kids. So that's very much the, the structure, and the structure, again, is very much revolved around family, even growing up. And then there's obviously also a very strong belief that the outside world is evil, and that includes not just the non-Jewish outside world, but even the Jewish outside world. Everyone who is not like us or like them is, is evil, and, and they talk about it in that way. And so I think I'm just going to pause you real quick right there. Uh, that's something that's kind of news to me. Uh, I've never, you know, I know there's a, a dissonance between the communities, but the idea that the outside world is evil, is that kind of shared? Have you 
did you see that being shared across the entire Hasidic community? Were there other people who didn't feel that way? I think that some sentiment of it is, is shared across the, across the board in every Hasidic community. And, and the, the concept of contemporary ultra-Orthodox Hasidism, it's not really a Hasidic, a Hasidic theology going back 250 years, because when Hasidus was founded, it was almost just the opposite. Like Everyone was good, everyone was perfect, and every Jew and every non-Jew even had a soul, and everyone was holy to some extent. But contemporary, most ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jews do have a belief, obviously, that they are above everyone. They are not just not just chosen in terms of like the, a very strong belief as Jews being a chosen people, even more so as them being the only authentic Jews. And, and to give you an example, um, growing up, I di- didn't know there's any difference between modern orthodoxy and conservative and reform and reconstructionists and renewal and secular Jews. Everything was one big. There was the Jews, the modern Jews who were really bad people, and all the Goyim, all the non-Jews, which again are Christian, Muslims, Buddhist, Hinduism, Whatever you are, it's all one big, one big cluster. Um, yeah. Uh, and so, you're talking about how that that sentiment hasn't always been there. I know you're a descendant of the Rabbi Baal Shem Tov. So, do you think over the generations, how is that, how has that changed? So um, that's very interesting. So I would say up to about the turn of the 18th century, there wasn't really a lot of movements within Ashkenazi, within Eastern European Judaism, which at that point specifically, like up to the, like before the Holocaust, Ashkenazi Jews made up about 92 to 93 percent of Jews. So you're talking the vast majority of the Jewish community was living in Eastern Europe at that time. Um, and there wouldn't really, there wasn't really any um, groups. There wasn't really like you're Orthodox, you're not Orthodox. Um, however, it wasn't like the Orthodox community is today or like they try to pretend. They have like this overly idealistic and nostalgic view to the shtetl life in Eastern Europe and all these like old villages and how beautiful it was, which is BS. It wasn't really like that. They, they want to recreate something that didn't really exist. It was a lot more like there was the big cities that had maybe a more established form of, of observance. And in the, in the shtetls, in the villages, people very much lived their own thing. Everyone followed everyone followed the basic rules. At home, people did whatever they wanted to do. There's all these stories of, of people were not really educated, specifically in the small villages. And it was also very divided between the elite, which included the scholars and the rabbis, and the lay people, the peasants, as they called them, the the, the everyone else. And there was almost no overlap among them. Like the rabbis and the scholars would lead the community and the people really believed and followed them, but they weren't really getting educated. And it was very rare even for people to to cross over between these sections. So it got to a point where it was extremely polarized and there was um, the elite who like did everything, who had their Jewish life and everyone else who wasn't really involved in Jewish life. And there was a very strong belief at that point also of um, being a scholar. Like if you're not a scholar, if you're not like studying Torah the whole day, then you don't have the same words. And also, like, it, it also started becoming overly legalistic, so to speak. There started being an extreme focus on law and following the law. You're talking here, the beginning of the 18th century was only about 150 to 200 years after the Shulchan Aruch, which is the Jewish law code, was published, which was the first time, like, today it's hard to think about it, but it was the first time that it was a unified law code. Up to that point, there were so many different opinions, so many of the opinions of what's called in Jewish, um, in Jewish history uh, d- during the period of the Rosh Hashanah. 
Rome. So like you're going all the way down to the 14th to 15th century. So many of these opinions are opinions that today would be considered totally against Jewish law and in a very radical way. Yet these were opinions and every rabbi had their own opinions, every family had their own traditions and everyone did whatever they wanted to do to some extent. So like once once the law code, the Shulchan Aruch was officially published, it became a lot more codified. So you're talking as that was going on, it became more more and more so where Judaism became extremely legalistic, extremely like detailed of like laws on how to blow your nose we used to joke like in all of that and I think that's so fascinating because I think there's this big myth rumor that and the ultra-Orthodox communities that they're kind of the last bearers of you know the true Judaism of you know that they've had the same laws forever that the Hasidic communities have stayed the same for years and years and years and they're the only parts of the Jewish world that's kept that but that's not the if case. they would, they probably would have worn striped dresses and turbans and turbans. <laughs> not not what they wear today. They are people who are trying to recreate the never existing 18th century. Um, and and I would I would agree that they haven't changed a lot since the 19th century. That there I will agree they haven't changed a lot. But it wasn't like that. And and to some extent, I always joke with people that um, when people try to claim that Orthodox Judaism is authentic, I'm like. I don't think any of that is authentic. If any movement is semi-authentic to what Jews were constantly, I think it's conservative Judaism because they, you had Jews throughout generations that are always trying to figure out what's going on. How religious are you going to be? How observant are you going to be? And that's like the only movement that still like does that to some extent where like they're trying to follow the law but don't know and like it's 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 figuring out which is which is each to their own. I, I don't necessarily think that one one movement around denomination has it figured out. I don't think I don't I think we all have interesting parts and, and everyone is trying still trying to figure out. I like to quote Abzalma Schechter, who was the founder of Renewal Judaism, and he always says the only authentic Judaism is a Judaism that recognizes that there is no authentic Judaism. Because it constantly evolved, it constantly changed, and, and that's the beauty of it. Um, so the Hasidic community, back to what we were talking in, with, with the Baal Shem Tov. So the Baal Shem Tov was a populist leader, not a populist as 2017 American politics populist, but a, a leader who came out who didn't he didn't come from a, any uh, elite family. As far there's not a lot known about his about his family, which just says on its own that it wasn't a big family. But from what we know, he was pretty much a peasant who grew up. In, in the forest, grew up uh, collecting wood and so on. And a big part of what he was trying to do was changing that dynamic. Um, and, and one of his biggest messages was that every Jew, every human being, it doesn't matter what your level of scholarship is, doesn't matter even what your level of observance to some extent has a place and has 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 a place in the community and has a place in the eyes of God and so on. There's, there's a lot of words that he would say. He always said that um, there could be two people um, one of them works the whole day and one of them studies the whole day, yet the person who works the whole day is God likes that person a lot more because that person does it for the right reasons and that person does it for the wrong reasons. It was all about what's behind it. Why are you doing something and how are you doing it? At the same time, he also brought a strong focus on spirituality, on singing and dancing, which did that's the part that did kind of, there's still parts of it in Hasidic Judaism today to some extent, which was also something that was new. And, and the, I would say the biggest part is that he took away the power from being like, you are holy if you're a scholar to you are holy if you are, if 
we call that in, 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 in Yiddish Hebrew, an oivet Hashem, someone who is like really worshiping God. If you really, and that can be in a lot of different ways. Um, Hasidim today don't like to hurt it, but um, um, historians believe that a lot of the first few generations of Hasidic scholars were barely actual scholars in, in, in law. They were just scholars of spirituality and in theology, and they knew, they knew that part. However, slowly, specifically as the Jewish Enlightenment is starting to come out from Germany, which, while it's Western Europe, is very close to Poland, and slowly started making its way towards Russia and in other areas, they... So, like, for the first few generations, Hasidism was fighting with, with, with the establishment. It wasn't really called orthodoxy, but it was mainly coming out from Lithuania, but establishment, rabbin, like, rabbinic and yeshiva structure and system. And... Um, as the Enlightenment was coming out, they, that's when they started joining forces. And that, so, like, orthodoxy very much, the way we know it today, started in Hungary. So, like, specifically orthodoxy in the sense of there's a set of laws that we have to follow and we can't change, and we're not going to change anything. We can resist change. Came a big part from the partition. There was an official partition between the reform and the, what became orthodoxy at that point in Hungary. And then later on, as it spread to the rest of Europe, Hasidim kind of joined forces with the rest of orthodoxy. And that's how they started becoming more and more. What we see today is a combination of Hasidic theology combined with this orthodox theology, which is like freezing in time and like not changing anything. And you put it together and you get what you get. And but although the way they are today, specifically the culture that they live in today, is just 60 years old. It started after the Holocaust and was in part a response to the Holocaust. Specifically, I, I think, and again, scholars are, are, are debating that, and it's hard to know exactly, but we definitely grow up a lot with the Holocaust on top of our heads. And um, like three of my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, and it's it's something that's that's a big part. And part of that message is also that everyone around us hates us. And I think that's interesting because that is one of the few things that I think connects different types of Judaism is the Holocaust. I think that is the modern day thing, which as as different maybe than reform and renewal congregations are to Hasidic uh, Synagogues. Um, if I can yeah. stop you, like you would be shocked. Specifically, renewal yeah. that has a lot of Hasidic features in it is not that different from Hasidic synagogues in terms of like, like Hasidic synagogue. When it comes to prayer, Hasidim still have a strong part. Like the prayers are still quite nice. Anyway, yeah. yeah. No. So uh, actually, so let's just kind of uh, continue on and talk about. So you grew up uh, in this Hasidic community. However, I'm looking at you, and you are. I wish everyone else would, because this is not a uh, Hasidic rabbi. Um, I don't look ma- Hasidic. You don't look like a Hasidic male rabbi to me today. So I am curious as to why you decided to ultimately leave that community. Yeah. Um, if you could just speak to that a little sure. bit. Yeah. Um, and other part of the Hasidic community is the gendered part. And it's extremely gendered and extremely segregated by gender. They're the most gender segregated society in the U.S. And every time I say that, I'm like, I'm waiting for someone to show me. I looked I looked on a lot of societies, a lot of communities. I still haven't found a community that's more segregated by gender. We're talking to the extent That's a that challenge. That's a challenge, a challenge to anyone listening. Sure. Find it. If you can show me a community that's more, and I'm talking to the extent that sisters, a brother and a sister, teenager, walking down the street, uh, is okay, but already slightly taboo. First cousins of what they perceive as the opposite gender don't interact with each other um, uh, once you're a teenager. You're talking uh-huh. as, like, you can see that, actually. If you anyone who goes to Brooklyn or to Rockland, Orange County, where they live, you can see that on the streets, man and woman don't 
you don't say hi to each other, you don't interact. And that was something that really bothered me, that really affected me strongly because since I remember myself, I was a girl. And um, a lot of people like ask me, how did you know? Like, when did you know? I can't really answer that because I just always knew. I know there was, um, I think it was Janet Mack, who is a trans uh, TV anchor. And I think it was Janet Mack in Oprah, in, in Oprah or it was someone else in, with Oprah, um, where she had with Oprah asked, like, on TV, like, how did you know you're a woman? And the trans woman asked her back, how did you know? It's something that, to me, it's hard. I don't know exactly. It's just something that I knew. And like, when I was three years old, I felt that my private barn parts are wrong without knowing the physical differences between boys and girls because that wasn't discussed. So that's something that started triggering, uh, obviously, a discomfort. And, and, and as it's called, the medical terms like gender dysphoria and, and that escalated. Um, so for a while, I had different ways of dealing with it. Um, when I was seven years old, for a while, I was like thinking about I'm going to do like a full body transplant because I didn't know anything medically. And I heard about organ transplants and I kept on reading about them. So I would think like, oh, this is what I'm going to do when I'm going to be older. For a while, I just like would pray to God every night that like just make me wake up as a girl and so on. Um, when I was around 12 years old is when I remember thinking, I was like, get over it. it that's impossible because I, I didn't even know that gay people exist, put away trans people, which is another interesting part with the Hasidic community, which is that at least when I was growing up, they, they were not anti-LGBT. The LGBT community didn't exist. There was no hate towards them. There was a, they were fighting against the internet, they were fighting against TV, against secular music. LGBT wasn't one of them, which is also interesting relative to other like conservative groups in the US. They were not even fighting because it simply didn't exist. Um, obviously they were LGBT people, but they were not, they would not recognize it and they would never, they wouldn't even interact with that. So I didn't know that they're LGBT people. Obviously I didn't know they're trans people. So I had to find other ways to deal with it. So when I was around 12, I started um, exploring the religious parts of it. So I started asking a lot of questions that I wasn't supposed to, which is really easy in the Hasidic community because you're not allowed to ask anything in terms of like anything outside the box, so to speak. Like you can't question anything that the rabbis say. You can't question anything in the Bible. You can't question anything remotely to the, ex forget about the existence of God, even about the nature of God, really. Everything is just very set in stone when it comes to theology. Um, so I did start asking these questions and, and um, again, like we don't have six hours to go into all the details, but um, at the end of it, um, uh, which was when I was around 19, I got to a point where I was done with Judaism. Um, though at that point it was done with Judaism altogether. Though there was a point when I was around 15 where I almost decided that I, I can't do this anymore. Um, and that's when I got introduced to Kabbalah, to Jewish mysticism. And interestingly enough, that's the first place where I found gender, semi-fluidity in gender. Um, to some extent, where like, um, I remember studying in Shara Gulim, which is the Torah's the reincarnation from Dari, from Rabbi Isaac Gloria, the father of modern Kabbalah. And that was the first place where um, I could actually find a conversation about a soul being in the wrong body or like that, like an identity, a gender identity and a gender body might not add up, which was really interesting. Although we were always told, and I was told by all my teachers who, who taught me Kabbalah that it has to be metaphorical and it can be taken on, on face value. It was something say that, that pushed me, that pushed me 
over until like I got married and had a son, which at that point I was fully into it, which is also like by the time I got married, I was really into it. I was really into mysticism and really into the community at that point. And then when I was 19, I um, was ready to leave and, and the questions were too much. And obviously gender dysphoria combined with that and a lot of depression that was resulted by that. Um, and finally, I did a worst thing ever and started exploring asking questions online and trying to find answers online. Uh, just like the first time, the first time I got online was the first time I learned about, um, I learned about other trans people and like got involved with the trans community first in Israel because I couldn't read, I couldn't read and write English. So Hebrew was an easier way. So I was involved with a trans forum on a website called Tapus, which is an online, uh, an online host for forum, Israeli forums, all in Hebrew. So that's where I started getting involved with that. And then slowly I learned about Footsteps, which is a, an organization in Manhattan that helps people who grew up ultra-Orthodox and have left. Um, and... Then I would say around that time, it was, again, it wasn't, it didn't go from one eye to the other, but I got uh, separated from my ex, um, and I loved the community. And then by fall 2014, I started school at Columbia. That's amazing. And then when did you uh, decide to start, like, looking into different, when did you kind of decide you wanted to maybe look back into the Jewish world, but on a different level? I know you attended Romemu for a little while, which is a Jewish renewal yeah, congregation. I still, I'm still a member of Romemu. Yeah. And so when I left, I kind of thought I'm not done with Judaism. I mean, although, like, by the time I left, I already knew there's other Jewish communities, but I kind of had no interest. And, in, like, I, I have read quite a lot, and I've studied it quite a lot, and I got to a point where from a sense of believe, I didn't really believe in the religion altogether and there was no need for it. You are um, suffering, as your rabbi said, from post-God traumatic disorder? That's a joke, more a joke <laughs> than a real diagnosis. But it's just, I think that's more what prevented me from even looking on the other on other parts. Um, um, to a big, in a big extent, I was like, I'm an atheist. I don't see anything here. There's no reason for me to look back on it. And then after a while, and I will be totally honest, I started missing certain parts of it. I started missing specifically, not really, none of them are really the community. Um, um, it was mainly like holidays and, and and the food. To be totally honest, and anyone who follows me on Instagram can see half of my Instagram. Instagram pictures are, are, um, are food. I call them food porn. I'm friends uh, with you on Facebook, and I'm pretty sure you mentioned you had over 2,000 people tune in to watch you bake challah last week. I did. I had. I did a live <laughs> Facebook view, and like you can see like right after that how many people have watched it, and over 2,000 people watched it. It's by now, I think, up to like 10,000 or whatever. But yeah, about 2,000 people tuned in to live. To all 10,000, you should all be listening to this interview. <laughs> we'll see. I will share we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, and then like, but I do a lot of cooking. But the food, the holidays, to to songs, even, and then a lot of spiritual messages of Judaism. Like I liked it. I liked it, the specifically life cycle and year cycle. I think of a very strong message. And I started missing the fact of taking one day a week off. And and a lot of people say like, if if, if not for religion, you can just take it on a Tuesday, maybe. But I like the structure that Shabbat provides, and so on. So I started exploring other communities. Um, the first book that about um, say contemporary modern or postmodern Judaism uh, was Mordechai Kaplan's uh, uh, Judaism as a Civilization. Um, though I tried to explore the Reconstructionist communities also for after that and didn't really relate to it. Um, then I got introduced to Rabzalm Schechter to and, and to his teachings and then to Romamu, which has been an amazing very spirit and hippie and progressive Jewish community. Um, so I started exploring it more and more, and now I'm say I'm, I'm my own 
Jew and my own non-Jew, doing my doing the things in a way that I that I feel they feel right for me and, and the way I relate to them. And thankfully also the queer Jewish community is just beautiful and amazing. And I've made so many uh, uh, LGBT and, and trans and gay and lesbian and bi like friends in the in the in the Jewish community, obviously outside Orthodox community, but still and, and that has been really beautiful. And you're talking a lot about these different organizations that you've kind of found a bit of a home in. Uh, however, you are also created a community for other people to find a home in. Uh, in the same year, the same month that you yeah, changed your name to, two months after you changed your name to Abby, um, you created this Facebook support group to support members who are leaving the Orthodox community and struggling with gender yeah. issues. Um, how has that group since 2015 now changed? So uh, when I left, I was, I, was afraid, I, I don't know of any Hasidic person who was openly trans before that. So um, that was a that was a really hard struggle. I mean, I had help from other Jewish LGBT groups, um, though not trans specific and not or, not ultra orthodox specific, just such as JQY, which is Jewish Queer Youth, um, Eshel, which is is an orthodox LGBT group, though modern orthodox, not ultra orthodox, but it's mainly it's LGBT in general. And then I started a support group for um, for for trans people who grew up ultra orthodox specifically. Uh, we had our first in person meeting. Um, in, just in downtown Manhattan in, in December of 2015. Um, I, I still hope to turn that into a full-fledged organization when I obviously want to have more time, but for now the Facebook group is running, we have meetings when we can, and, and I'm hoping to expand that. In addition to that, I'm hoping to expand that group. I've been working with a few people who grew up in other fundamentalist religious communities, and we're hoping to create a trans support group for people who, like, a, a formally fundamentalist trans support group, so trans people who come from a whole wide range of fundamentalist backgrounds, should be fundamentalist Muslim communities, Amish, Jehovah Witness, Mormons, and so on. So, like, communities that are very strongly, at, like, against trans people to the extent that you can't be trans in that community, and, and, like, I feel like there's so much overlap that we can all help each other. There's so much misinformation out there about the trans communities and it leads to a lot of hatred and bigotry. I think the biggest story that comes to my mind is uh, Kurt Schilling, who is a uh, who's a pitcher, pitched for the Red Sox for the other teams for a while uh, and became kind of this political star in a way who is challenging Elizabeth Warren, but not because no one's supporting him. He's his political opinions are completely wild, but he's got a big following. He tweeted out this picture of a his imagined version of a trans person that was just absolutely horrible uh, as a reason for, you know, not for the whole bathroom debate about who do you let in what bathroom. Uh, and I don't and it's really hard when you see all that negativity coming out. So I'm just kind of curious with all that misinformation out there, kind of what what do you want? To what, what do you want to message to people who want to be allies, uh, who want to have more information, uh, so it, so this, this message can be brought out in a larger audience? Um, I haven't seen that picture, and I think I'm fine <laughs> for now. Uh, there's a lot. So first of all, we're in we're in in an age that I would say ignorance is a choice. Um, you could go online, you can learn a lot. There's some really great places to learn. I would say specifically, like if you want to like more legitimate information, let's call it. Check out what um, a human rights campaign has to say. Glad, which is a LGBT media organization, um, and so many other so many other people like. I would say read memoirs from actual trans people, not what other people have to say about us. Bathrooms, I just always say, um, 
During the 60s, when there was a fight about the water fountains, it wasn't about water, drinking water, um, like with the with people of color. And now with LGBT, with the trans community, it's not about bathrooms. They just it's just a, a medium for haters to hate. Haters gonna hate, hate, hate. <laughs> people are just gonna find a way, and this seemed like a medium where they can actually put a lot. Like it's like. I study public policy and like we always know when like when you want to implement a law you can be vague like you need to put it you need to put it into action like where are you actually going to put it it seems they're doing the same thing they want to like put their feet onto some action so the bathrooms have been the the what they have been trying to um to hang, hang themselves on um but it's not about that and i think meeting people statistics show that the more that once people know a trans person in person in person they tend to be a lot more accepting and a lot more welcoming and so on so that is a big part of what um people need to do is like actually reaching out don't trust what you see on twitter don't trust the picture talk to people read what we actually have to say before you actually develop an opinion and so on and I think to follow up on that, I'm going to push you even a little more, if that's all right. Uh, I can push back, but go ahead. Yeah, well, please do. There's been a lot of resurging uh, vocal anti-Semitism that we've seen in the country, uh, such as Charlottesville is a big demonstration of that. How does that push us even further today and how we have to be activists? If we are not going to stand up for ourselves... First and foremost, it's hard to get allies if you we are not talking. We got to talk out first, and then we can get allies. But most importantly, there are so many people who have hate, and and if you look on the historical trends, and I think that that's always important to put put it in context. Um, for some reason, the same people who were fighting against women's right to vote were the same people who had a problem with the civil rights movement. Or the same people who have a problem with LGBT people. You look on that, and it's like the haters don't just they they just always need. It's almost human nature to some extent to some people where they need a group, they need an other, they need someone to hate, and that is not gonna stop until. We, we can be quiet because they are not going to be quiet. We constantly have to be on the streets. You might think that doing a protest, going gathering a union square is not going to change anything. It is going to change anything. And it's twofold. It's for people who are struggling, people in the closet, in whichever way, people who are struggling with whichever identity they have, which they don't feel they can be safe, um, talking about that identity, seeing people vocally. And that even if it's on social media, you might think that just tweeting something is not going to do anything. It will, to good for good and for bad. And specifically, like, showing up in person to a rally, to anything like that, even if you're not necessarily protesting anyone, even if you are in New York City and you're gathered to protest, uh, like, Let's call, let's say, granting to protest the ban, the refugee ban, or anything. What it is, and you were like, "What? You're preaching to the choir." It matters. It matters for the people who are struggling, and at the same time, it sends a message to haters that you can't, you're not going to get away with it. Like making sure for us, we have to stay vigilant to make sure that we don't get um, immune ourselves. Um, to it, but also not to let them get away with anything and to send a message that, no, you can't do that. You can't just kill an unarmed person because of the color of their skin. You can't just um, beat someone up because you don't like their sexuality or their their gender identity and, and, and so on. You can't have any prejudice based on a religion, based on because someone is Jewish or someone is Muslim and so on. And we have to constantly, constantly talk about it, even if you feel... Uh, a lot of people talk about an echo chamber, that we're in an echo chamber sometimes, which could 
could be true specifically for people in New York or in other liberal cities. It's still important, even if it's an echo chamber, because as long as the echo is there, we, we're going to hear it. We're not going to forget about it. The second we are like, okay, we are done, they're going to come out even more. At the same time, like it's obvious that it goes both ways. There's a lot more hate against trans people now than it was five years ago because there was less visibility. There's also a lot more acceptance. So it's it's always a two a two sided sport that we have to be really careful how we how we treat it and how we deal with it. But that shouldn't stop people. The fact that sometimes it feels that every time we protest against one thing, we get two more problems coming up. It's not necessarily because we're not making these problems. These problems were there anyway. They're just coming out of the woodblocks, and we just gotta fight it. And and. I don't think there's an end to this. Unfortunately, until we can find the magic gene that kills hate, I don't think it's going to end, to be totally honest. But we can help it. We can try to make it better for people, for minorities, for people who struggle in some way. Yeah, and I think that can be really hard for people to hear that. Uh, but I think it does you know, speak to that notion. If you are good at your job, you know, I think that you are going to, there's going to be more work for you. The more you're getting done, the more of work course. there is to do. And I think of that course. translates completely to activism. Of course. You know, you, you did see when uh, they did try to do another neo-Nazi rally in Boston, the activists came yeah. out yeah. and they, they left. There was a big march in uh, New York City a few months ago because Steve Bannon was invite, had an invitation to the ZOA. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of progressive Jews said yeah. that is yeah. not okay, and they didn't show up, which was pretty remarkable. And I do think that speaks to this notion of what activism is: is noise. Don't don't not go out there because you think you're just adding to the noise. That's what activism is: is acting, is adding to that noise. We gotta continue to scream. Yeah, we gotta continue to scream. And if it doesn't, it, it will it always have some effect. And even if we feel it doesn't so much, and I think that goes to looking at a lot of people feel have been feeling lately. Um, I'm really pessimistic and really feeling like it's only getting worse. And uh, sometimes I hate to be the optimist and I hate to be like saying it's not as bad as you think because specifically for people struggling, it feels really, really bad. Um, I watched on YouTube a few a few weeks ago a clip of President Obama talking to um, the White House interns a while ago, and someone asked them that they're how how can you be so so optimistic all the time and he says because you got to be looking on the bigger picture i i personally don't see how anyone could say that there's more um hate today than there was 200 years ago there's maybe more today than there were 10 years ago i will admit to that but it's always and specifically when it comes to hate the more they feel threatened the more they feel that their specific way of life which is like white straight cis hetero whatever is being threatened they're gonna get wilder and wilder and but but that's not because it's getting necessarily getting worse as much as it, it's like a, a candle before like which flickers before it ends and, and I think we have so much work to do on every front but we have progressed we have the the, the strides that we have made in the last few decades and and and, and is 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 amazing and we just gotta continue fighting it's gonna be hard and, and but we will we, we we have already accomplished so much and we'll continue to accomplish more and with that i want to ask what more do you want to accomplish you are doing so much incredible activism right now and so what is what is going on with you 
uh, in your short term and long term goals? Life. Uh, yeah, um, I would say like more on the short term side. I would say two bigger projects that I'm working on is I'm I'm in the early stages of publishing a book, which is going really well, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, it's it's a lot of work physically and mentally, <laughs> um, going through like bringing up old memories and, 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 and trying to like actually write it down and, and but it's happening. Um, I'm also, I can't say a lot about that, but I'm also doing a documentary project, which is, uh, will come out soon. Um, and then even more short term, I've been doing a lot of speaking to communities and, and it's a big part of like talking and talking, which, which includes different ways. I do sometimes just Q and A's. I do talk, telling my story, I do storytelling. I do uh, logistical activism, uh, speeches. I do a lot of tech studies. Um, I've done that online. I've done over, over 50 by now tech studies on looking on Judaism and gender and Judaism and feminism and so on. Um, which is something that I hope to continue doing. I've been already in, uh, a lot of cities all over the U.S. and Canada and in Europe, and I hope to continue doing that in, in, in whichever way I, I get the opportunity to. And where can people go and find you? Um, so I ha- um, I am on Facebook. I have a public uh, confirmed page, like the blue check. So if you just put Abby Stein in page, you will see it. Um, my Twitter handle is Abby Chavestein. So it's Abby, uh, C-H-A-V-A-S-D-I-N, which is the same as my Instagram handle. Um, my website is called The Second Transition. It's the thesecondtransition.blogspot.com. But if you just put in The Second Transition in Google, that's the first result usually. And there's a contact tab there as well. So if you want to like email me, um, there's a public email and so on. Before I close out this episode of The Newest Jewish, I want to ask if uh, you can remember those personal identifier words that you came up with at the beginning of the episode. Got them? Now come up with a few words that you want to identify with. Were those identifiers the same? Where was their discrepancy? If there was discrepancy, What are you going to do to further become the person that you want to and can be? I want to once again thank Abby Stein for sharing her personal, powerful story here today. This has been The Newest Jewish. You can follow me on Instagram at The Newest Jewish. Please subscribe and share if you would like to keep this conversation going. (laughs) 